On this episode of AvTalk, the impossible has finally happened. Berlin's Brandenburg Airport is open, but not without some hiccups. We also welcome Matthew Colbert of Empire Aviation Services to talk about how smaller airports are faring under COVID. And our friend Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren goes on a piston-powered adventure. Hello and welcome to episode 97 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Urbanowitz and hello Ian, we're getting... Difficult and close to 100. Do you think we're going to make it? Dangerously close, I would say. Dangerously close. It's also been difficult, but it's it also has dangerous. Been it's an uphill slog, as they say. It's been a week. It's only it's, Wednesday, but it's been a week. It's, it's I, I don't weird. know what this week will have in store by the time this is out on, on Friday, but it's been a week already. Yes, this week has been the longest year of my life. And there's been no shortage of airline news. No, this is a full episode. This isn't one of those episodes where we start at the top of the episode and go, you know what? Nothing happened. And then we try and fill 45 minutes to an hour. No, this has been a busy, busy aviation fortnight. So there's even some good news sprinkled in. There's even some good news sprinkled in. So let's see. On this episode, we have Matthew Colbert, who is the founder of Empire Aviation Services. He's going to join us in a little bit to talk about how smaller airports and airlines that are operating smaller aircraft like regional jets like the CRJ-200, the CRJ-700 have been affected and are dealing with COVID and the associated realignment of aircraft and airlines there. We're also going to chat with our friend Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren. Are we going to punch his frequent podcast guest card again? Is he up, we to, a, are. Is he up to a free sandwich yet? We might owe him a hat or something at this point. But I could make him a sandwich, I suppose. He did something fun, and we'll let him tell you about that Lucky. in a little bit. But something happened. And I cannot believe that I am about to say this. Say it. What is it going to be? It can't be as unbelievable as what I think you're going to tell me. I think it might be. Berlin's Brandenburg Airport finally opened. No. Yes. Wow. It finally happened. It's only seemingly an eternity late. What's the official number of years late this airport is? I think it's eight and change, so almost nine years late, I think. Eight years late, nine years late, billions of euros over budget. The airline it was built to be a home hub for hasn't existed in three years. Air Berlin is long gone into the dust of the history books of aviation. And how did the opening go? Well, let's just say that the inaugural ceremonial opening of the airport went just about as well as the construction period and previous nine years. Well, no, I, it went better than that. It actually happened. I mean, it has to have gone better than that. It's no, not it like went the plane landed and billions of euros evaporated. <laughs> yeah, it, it, they didn't accidentally land in like New Berlin, Wisconsin or something like that. But no, it was on brand, shall we say. The plan had been for parallel arrivals on the two runways for an EasyJet flight and a Lufthansa flight. And the flight numbers were written such that it noted that it was the 31st of October 
In the year 2020, it was EasyJet 3110 and Lufthansa 2020. They were supposed to touch down at the exact same moment and ceremonially open the, the airport. The weather had other plans, as the weather often does. There was poor weather and they had to all land on a single runway, one after the other. But that was fine. They landed, they taxied, they got a water cannon salute. It all looked very nice. We'll put a picture of that in the show notes because it does. A good water cannon salute is always a nice thing. Well, that's something. I know I've seen this raised before and I'm also a little confused why they weren't able to conduct a parallel landing on these two runways when they're, I think they're spaced out more than a mile apart from each other. So that's a question that I'd like to see if somebody can answer as why they couldn't conduct a parallel landing when the runways are are not all that close together. It's not like Newark or SFO where they're like literally, I don't know, 100 feet apart from each other. What happened here? What I heard from a few people, and I haven't been able to confirm this, so there might be you know some gray area in here as to the the categories of the ILS system on the other runway, whether or not it can support the particular conditions that they found themselves in. And that may have had something to do with it. But if you've got an authoritative source, by all means, drop us a note at podcast.fr24.com. Or if you've been in the airport, I know we've gotten a few emails over the years that inform us on the progress of the opening of this airport. I know it's been, you know, a kind of a joke among those who follow these sorts of things. Kind of. But I was being generous. I know that it has been the laughing stock of the industry. Is there that better, better? Okay. But it's open and they begin their first real operations later this week where, where they kind of you know move everybody in and things like that. So, you know, it happened. So we have to pick something else to point and laugh at now. Yeah. And unfortunately, this is the second time in as many weeks where there was some sort of ceremonial dual action on two runways at the same airport as British Airways a couple of weeks ago was supposed to have both of its last remaining 747s at Heathrow take off simultaneously, which is exceedingly rare. I don't know if that's ever happened. But again, that did not happen due to weather. Sad. Sad. Yeah. The takeoff thing, I guess, is even more interesting because I don't understand that one. Well, so those, funny, those two runways are quite a bit closer spaced, I think, than in, in Berlin. And the weather was truly quite, as you know, Heathrow tends to do in the morning, not good. Not good. The technical term, not good. In the the METAR says, just not good. Not good. Excellent. Land elsewhere. Well, it's open. Maybe one day we'll get to fly there and find out what it's like. (laughs) Not from the US, we can't. There's there's no airline that flies nonstop. That's true. That's true. That's true. Maybe one day we'll eventually figure out how to do it. If you would like to resurrect Air Berlin, contact Ian. Yeah, I I have $20 that I can kick in and lose real quick, real quick. So yeah, anyway. Also kind of around the 10-year mark, today in the United States, what is now yesterday in Australia and Singapore marks 10 years since the uncontained engine failure on Qantas flight QF32, which I mean- 
for those who don't know the story, I could do an entire podcast series. Yeah, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know the story of 2F32, finish listening to this podcast and subscribe (laughs) if you haven't already, and then go literally read a book about 2F32. Yes, called 2F32. So the captain of 2F32 wrote an excellent book, both about his life you know, how he became a pilot and, and some really fascinating stories about the things that he got to fly in the Royal Australian Air Force and then as a Qantas pilot. But then the latter half of the book really gets into the the nitty gritty of how the crew dealt with this uncontained engine failure, which was a significant degradation of the A380's capabilities. And I'm still amazed that the airplane Oh yeah, was able it, to it's fly. A fantastic story safely. of an exemplary crew and a, an aircraft. This, in this case, the A three eighty, built so well with so many redundancies that it's just truly unbelievable that that aircraft was able to land in its condition. Definitely, if you haven't already, read up on QF thirty two. So it's ten years when I saw, you know, that kind of come across my timeline. I was like, oh, has it really been 10 years? And sure enough, it has. It has. And the, the 10th year has not been so kind to both aircraft and pilot in this case. As yeah. Pilot Richard DeCrebney has actually retired early due to the COVID grounding of the A380s and said A380 is now hanging out in a desert somewhere, maybe coming back into service if in ever. Three years, years from maybe. Now. Yeah. Maybe. So yeah, I mean the the other remarkable, truly remarkable thing about Q thirty two is not only did they land the aircraft safely, no one was injured. I think someone hurt their leg coming down the stair, like like twisted an ankle or something coming down the stairs exiting the aircraft, and that was the extent of the injuries. But they repaired it. They spent eighteen months and they repaired the aircraft, and it has flown since two thousand twelve to well now. And now, as Jason mentioned, it's parked in the desert. I think it's Victorville is where it's at. So you can actually it's, – it's parked near one of the fences. So if you're in the Southern California area, you can actually get up close to it and have a look at it if you so choose. But there it sits. And unfortunately, yeah, it's the early retirement for the captain of QF32. Jason, you put something on Twitter today that I – found absolutely fascinating. And the way you phrased it, I thought was both very well done, but also a bit sad. So, <laughs> Like many of my tweets are. Yeah, yeah, like 2020 is. Well said and a bit sad. So tell us what's going on with Air Baltic. Well, the tweet word for word says, what does this airline CEO do during the worst downturn in aviation history? learns how to fly the damn planes himself. That's what. So this is not specifically unique, but Air Baltic's CEO actually has had, he was a pilot, and I guess in this case, he still is a pilot. He was with British Airways flying, I think, the 737. And Air Baltic did operate the 737 up until somewhat recently. But he actually took the downturn in the aviation industry to get his type rating for the Airbus A220, which is now Air Baltic's primary and possibly only aircraft. I don't know if it still operates the 7.3 or Dash 8s at this point. 
but he is in an extremely exclusive and, and maybe the only airline CEO in the world right now who is actually type rated to fly one of their active aircraft, which is I think is just really cool. I would walk that back a little because I'm sure someone's going to email us, podcast at fr24.com. I said it with uncertainty. I don't right, right, know of right. any other airline CEO who does have an, an active type rating for one of its aircraft. I'm sure there are. But I'm I sure there know. are. Yeah. I don't and, know and of any. Someone's going to write in, you know, I'm the CEO of, you know, something, something I'm else. I'm Ed Bastion and, and I am, I know, <laughs> wait a minute. But I, that's pretty cool. Air, check well, it out because Air Baltic put a little video, a minute and 10 second video about his simulator time. And it's just refreshing to have a CEO of an airline who can literally get in the seat and fly the plane. And I know he has in the past on the 737. So if you fly Air Baltic, there is a chance that the guy in the left or right seat is literally the CEO of the airline. Not quite Dutch royalty like with KLM. Right, right. That's got to be terrible though. If you found out and you have a complaint about that particular flight. Or if you're the junior FO and the, the guy in the left seat is uh, oh, literally man. your boss's 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 boss. Yeah, that's got to be rough. Or, or maybe it's great. You know, Probably you, great. You, you get the know. CEO's ear for, for an hour and a half or, or something like that. So let's keep with the A220 and go back to something that we talked about in a previous episode because we have some new new information. A listener was kind enough to send us a very clear video of the sound that we were discussing with the A220. So Steve Harvey, thank you very much for the YouTube video that is in the show notes. So click on that and you can listen to exactly what we're talking about. But this sad whale song that comes out. Last time we talked about it, a couple of people wrote in and mentioned that it had something to do with the flaps deployment, which I Mm-mm. now believe to be incorrect that because not the case. I hear it in the takeoff run-up. And also when, you know, in taxing and things like that. So I don't have an explanation yet, but we have reached out to Pratt and Whitney to hopefully have someone come on the show and explain exactly what we're hearing. Yes, I have been told it's basically the, the gear turbo fan releasing pressure on a, on a very quick throttle up or down, which is why you would expect to hear it on approach landing or taxiing, because that that's when you're going to have you know very quick moving up the throttle. But I'm curious to know, and I'm hoping they can explain why it's so specific to the A220 and no other aircraft with a geared turbofan really produces quite that howl. That is a good question. You don't hear it out of the A320neo. You don't. Somebody mentioned that they do hear it on the E-Jet. But I, I have, yeah, I, I've never, I don't have any, unfortunately, I've never seen an, an E190E2 or any of the right, E2. Right. So that would be something interesting to find out. But you're right. You don't hear it on the A320neo. So hopefully we'll find out. Hopefully they'll be able to come on the show and hopefully we'll be able to find out exactly what's going on. But to get a really good listen to what Jason and I are describing, have a look at the YouTube link in the show notes and you'll see exactly what we're talking about if you haven't already heard the A220's sad whale song. Let's see. Highfly and their A380. Hey, what a saga. Done. It's done. That, no more. That lasted, that lasted not very long. A little under three years, about two and a half years. And it did. It was an experiment, an interesting experiment sure. that did not 
really go all that well. Not, I don't think anyone really expected it to go well ever since, you know, Norwegian tried operating it for a little bit into JFK. And that was just an operational nightmare, as you would expect, for a whole host of reasons. But it's just operating an A380 on a last minute charter weight lease operation just never seemed like a good idea because most airports are not ready or suitable for NA380. So it always struck me as just very, very strange. And they tried to bounce back in the last couple of months. They actually converted it to a COVID combi. So it, it, all the seats were gone and it, it hauled freight around the world. But it's just not long for this world anymore. And HiFi will exit it from the fleet by the end of the year. Yeah. So the first flight of any kind by HiFly with the aircraft after taking delivery was on the 19th of July in 2018. Three years later, they had conducted 276 total flights. Not great. Not great. No. And that's total flights. That's not revenue flights. That's not cargo flights. That's just total flights. So that includes positioning flights, maintenance flights, and things like that. I, I haven't had a chance to, to break down the numbers yet. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, it operated as a Norwegian aircraft for the first few months of its operational existence. Then it moved over to the Air Austral leasing, back to Norwegian, back to Air Austral, back to Norwegian. And then it made the Madrid Caracas route, did a lot of that, and then went back to Norwegian, and then didn't really do much after that. I mean, it was busy until last September, and then not really much after that. And then this year, you know, they, they tried to do the COVID combi, but they used it twice. Yeah, not great. In the day and age we're in now, whatever you want to call it, there are just far too many excess available aircraft for the A380 to make sense. When, when they originally put it in service, you could not find an aircraft in the world to wet lease on some occasions. So I think the A380 was more a, a sheer move of desperation rather than aspiration, but there's just no need for it anymore. No. And so they will be replacing the A380 with what they say are a few A330s to better complement the Plenty required of size. Yeah, I mean, right now you can pick up pretty much anything. Literally, American Airlines' entire fleet of A330s is now available for the picking. So There you go. How about it? So that's happening. And then Emirates last week also retired its first A380. But this one, the actual timing of the retirement flight was COVID related. The retirement itself was not. As Emirates likes to maintain a young fleet, they do enjoy a good spring chicken. This one was 12 years old and already scheduled to exit the fleet. So they were already done with that. And so it sat around longer than it would have had COVID not come along. But it's still their first A380 out of the fleet. They've got a couple hundred more, so they're not hurting. They'll be around a while. Aircraft. Yeah. Let's take a quick break and have Matthew Colbert come in and join us and talk about uh, much smaller aircraft and much smaller airports than the ones serving A380s and learn more about how small cities, small airports, and small aircraft are faring in this day and age. So stay with us. We will be right back after this.
Welcome back. We are now joined by Matthew Colbert, who is the founder of Empire Aviation Services. It is a uh, strategic consultancy and advisory that deals with a lot of the long-term planning that uh, goes into the aviation industry. And, and these days, there's no shortage of that. What we've asked uh, Matthew to come talk to us about today is really the plight of smaller smaller aircraft and smaller airports and how they're faring as they navigate COVID. So, so Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Well, thank you, Ian and Jason, for having me on. You know, as Welcome. A, thanks. As a fellow proud lifetime av geek, you know, having worked in and around aviation since uh, early high school in my hometown airport and subsequently in revenue management and commercial strategy roles at JetBlue, Delta, and United, you know, now leading a consulting firm at Empire Aviation, where we help communities identify, develop, and ultimately improve their air service, and through that, grow their economies. It's really not only what we do at Empire, but it's a passion of mine personally, coming from a small city um, in upstate. I can first personally attest to that, that we have spoken on many, many occasions about uh, some very small upstate New York airports. So this is, I can vouch for you that this is a personal passion of yours, not just a job. Well, thanks. And Jason, you're personally a big fan of the CRJ 200 as well. I know that's oh, my favorite. Exactly. <laughs> and watching your plane to Dulles on flight radar go out and back and out and back. And hey, not- they're up to a 700 these days. We'll be talking about that a bit. And I think long term, it'll be that if not bigger, but it's the it's when you want to leave the office at you know six or seven p.m. and get home for the night. That may not be there. Oh, now I'm sad. <laughs> so let's talk about the, the state of of smaller airports and of smaller aircraft. We've looked at a little bit of data over the past couple months that shown that that regional jets as a whole, uh, without really breaking up you know the the fleet size, have fared rather well for the most part, but that hasn't necessarily stayed true at smaller airports. Exactly. And really looking at regional jets, breaking it up between the 50-seaters and even going back further when there were 37-seat Dash 8s and Beechcraft 1900s back into the first 10 years of the 2000s, that's where you really see the decline in the number of departures at airports that relied on them for getting to and from bigger hubs and driving their economy, getting business traffic in and out, visitors in and out. And that's where we've seen the pressure on the FAA classifies them as small, non-hub primary airports. So your Appletons, your Duluths, your Tri-Cities and Sun Valleys that have really been hammered by the lack of an aircraft that uh, is under 50 seats. And with Delta's announcement of retiring their 50-seaters by 2023, by the end of 2023, that'll continue to affect those smaller cities and ultimately have knock-on effects for their economies. That's right. So while United and American both operate uh, E-145s at the 50-seat level, Delta only has the CRJ-200 at that level. So once that's gone, they won't have a 50-seater. So that, that's a huge question mark, isn't it? Yes. And that's what we're helping some of our airport clients grapple with right now. When you go to a 76-seater and grow capacity by 25 seats, you know, or t- per departure, then how do you handle that? How do you handle 50% more capacity? And it's not just growing the catchment area, because a lot of these communities, there is no growing the catchment area. Is it going down to two frequencies a day instead of four? And what does that mean for 
business travelers or travelers that want to get in and out in the same day. That holy grail of a day trip, you know, maybe more challenging to do that if there isn't a replacement aircraft for that or another opportunity via secure bus or other method. So the problem is really, I don't even know if it's just twofold, but recently the problem is, is twofold because you have the pandemic dramatically decreasing travel and and bringing business travel really to nil for the most part outside of truly major hubs. And then you also have pressure being put on these smaller, less efficient aircraft because of the lack of business travel and, and things like that. So it's kind of a, a self-reinforcing negative cycle. Is there anything beyond that, that that's looking hopeful or is it just kind of stemming the tide as best you can? You know, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head and that's one of the reasons why we love aviation because it's rarely ever just one challenge that's affecting it or one opportunity. We, beyond if we wait until a new aircraft or a new technology for more, you know, that will help take the fuel costs down. There is the opportunity to really look at, there's a lot of things that communities themselves can do, whether it's taking advantage of the small community air service development program for cities that are not essential air service cities. That is a department of transportation managed program that helps marketing efforts, will uh, subsidize air service, will, and the community, all sorts of uh, tools to the community puts together a package and application to get the grant from the government to help grow their air service. So that is a program that could be expanded through the government side to keep air service in these towns, given there is a clear correlation to the economic development of these cities. So let me let me step back for a second, because Jason and I have mentioned essential air service a few times throughout the history of the podcast, but I don't think we've ever really you know, committed to explaining really what it is. Could, could you give us a, a brief overview of what the essential air services is? Absolutely. So the essential air service program is separate from what I'd mentioned of the small community air service development, which is our, which our grants communities apply for to augment their air service or develop marketing efforts or, you know, subsidize a new route temporarily. This essential air service program was part came about after deregulation. And that is really for communities that are isolated, uh, 120 miles or further from a certain size other airport, it is a straight subsidy for the ticket price to keep air service there. And in a study of the economic air service program, essential air service program, they said that the number one way to attract business was air service routes. So it's an economically, it's an important program for communities to have that service to them, whether it's, and it's primarily on 50 seat regional jets. Because you have providers that operate smaller nine-seat aircraft that are under Part 135 operations that are fantastic additions to the air service network in our country, but including Cape Air. But they have a challenge with a lot of business travelers. They have the turboprophobia or piston propophobia, and it's harder to get people onto the airplane. And then you end up with kind of a spiral downward of having unreliable air service or air service that individual airports don't want, they want the 50-seat jet or bigger coming in, that then causes travelers who would fly into that airport to go to an airport further afield and then lower that airport's payments and then air new airlines will not come in there. So it's really like peeling an onion almost. The more you unwrap it, the more you peel it, the more it makes you want to cry at times. But 
the the upside of the essential air service program is it can have incredible benefits to the community by connecting it. And we're not only talking about bringing in new jobs and factories and commercial ties. It's getting local doctors at a hospital to a conference. It's getting people, you know, off the highway into, you know, onto the aircraft, which we know is incredibly safer than driving. So there's a whole host of benefits to the essential air service program that is not just captured in the flights itself being at the airport. And it's become, I think, especially helpful during COVID as we've seen a number of airlines, uh, specifically American, has paired back service from a lot of smaller airports, while the essential air service uh, airports have not really seen an elimination of service because American literally can't eliminate service, can they? Right. And between going back a little further, 2010, the essential air service and of all days today to be talking about this has become sort of a political football because there's about 109 airports that are part of the program currently, and that's up from five in 2010. But the cost of the program a year has nearly doubled to $276 million. So due to labor costs, uh, pilot costs from the, F, the number, the rule change to the number of hours pilots must have. So it has, uh, it's a very shiny object for politicians to talk about as fraud and waste, but it has real benefits to the communities to, in existence. And if we're talking about the size of the government, it is very small. So I want to talk a little about how these small airports work. There are cases where you might have, let's say, in the the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, an, an airport that only serves Delta Connection flights under essential air service. How do these airports remain financially? Where does their funding come from? Is it a mix of like federal funding, state funding, airline subsidies? How does it work? Can you walk us through that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. And every airport, you know, has their own relationship with their airlines and they can determine that, especially the smaller airports like the ones, the Upper Peninsula that we're both thinking of, they even had tag flights until recently. So they can waive certain fees, landing fees, have incentives to keep the airline there and have federal federal subsidies, which would be the essential air service program, state benefits that are state specific to because of the role connecting the community as an engine of the economy. And then ultimately lo- local benefits like waiving fees at the airport or a legion at some airports will even rent counter space by the hour because they're not there every day of the week or multiple flights a day. So airports can get and governments can get incredibly creative and increasingly will have to get very creative to keep this air service and think not only at the airport, but who's flying on the planes? Is it a local hospital? Is it a local one local employer? And bring them to the table to put together this package because ultimately there are 300 plus commercial airports in the United States, but every airline's network planning team is pretty small and getting smaller. So how do you make that case to the airline that this is where you should be putting this aircraft, especially as 50 seaters go away and you only have 76 seaters or larger, that asset, the airplane becomes even more valuable. So the real driver is is the lack of a suitable jet aircraft. I mean, when, when we step back, the lack of a, a 50-seat suitable jet aircraft, because people don't want to fly on turboprops or, or, or piston props, but the the 76-seaters are sound like a little too much capacity. That lack of, of 50 seats is the issue, no? That's definitely part of the issue. And the, the trend of has been going on um, of airports losing air service and losing really their frequencies since 
the turn, you know, since 2000, you know, since 2005, they have a quarter fewer departures at this size airport, the small and non-hub primary commercial airport. So it's even when there were those, air, there were 37 seat Dash 8s flying around or Beechcraft 1900s, you have a consolidation that has taken away, you know, that airlines have rationalized capacity, which means, well, they're doing better now than they would be during this situation. Otherwise, there aren't the hubs of Pittsburgh's and St. Louis's and Cincinnati's that a lot of these communities connected through. Um, you can get you know, any old airlines wall, route map or my wallpaper and to sit and see that. So it's, it's the consolidation that's affected this. It's the pilot change rule. It's the lack of the aircraft. The Of course, the TSA, the common uh, complaint, the additional time that's caused to do all of those things together in addition to the change in pilot hours that has created this perfect storm for smaller communities to keep to even keep their air service, let alone grow it. So other than getting creative, are there any holistic approaches that that the industry is taking to increase service? Because obviously airlines want to, as you said, rationalize their their capacity. And these smaller communities are looking to increase their their attractiveness. What are some of the more creative solutions that you've seen have, that have been successful? The more creative solutions would be really bringing everybody to the table, having the local large employer there and saying, you know, we can guarantee you X amount of seats to this foreign destination that you really want to fly to. You know, it's an amazing example that Delta in Elmira, New York, has multiple two cabin RJs a day uh, due to their corning glass is flying to Asia from there. And that's a large local employer. So that model is, you know, you could apply that to Peoria where you have Caterpillar and other city, other smaller communities around the country, whether it's a university, that's a large employer and or a larger or a factory or whatever that may be. That's really the best path forward for airports that are, you know, smaller and unable to naturally grow their traffic or recapture it from a larger airport, maybe an hour and a half, two hours away. The pandemic, I mean, at this point, I, I will say it's not going to be over anytime soon, or at least the recovery is not going to be over, uh, or is not really going to be beginning in earnest anytime soon. So while we're in this depressed period, have you seen any movement from from smaller airports, you know, trying to do anything to make themselves look more attractive to airlines, or if things just kind of been put on hold for right now. I think as as we're coming, we're uh, I think uh, Scott Kirby said uh, that um, the United's earnings call that we're it's not the beginning of the end, but it's the end of the beginning. And airports are starting now to think beyond COVID as much as possible because you're seeing the fleets the fleet changes that Delta announced and fleet planning is really long term network planning. So any opportunity that they can find, whether it's you know, a leisure destination temporarily, that opportunistic flying or a certain time of year where there's more traffic through to that community, just to stay on the airline's route map is really important, whether it's, you know, a college graduation, like Penn State being in person. So looking at University Air Park or if there's a NASCAR race or any of those individual events, just to say to the airline, we, we know everyone's looking for cash right now. Here's an event and maybe three, four days long where we can guarantee you a good return for an aircraft that's otherwise going to sit idle. So it's very granular. It's very low level kind of boots in the ground work that 
a lot of the airlines don't have the teams to do, but that's where airports can keep their dot on the map for right now. That's fascinating. Matthew Colbert, the founder of Empire Aviation Services. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about something that Jason and I generally don't really get to explore all that much. One, it's not certainly not my area of expertise and possibly outside of Jason's. But two, it's it's tough to find, you know, a, a way to really to really get into the the nitty-gritty of this and and I appreciate you coming on and, and helping us do that. So so thank you for joining us very much. Thanks, Matthew. Well, thanks so much for having me. Welcome back. That, I think, lays out not a great scenario for, I don't want to call it rural aviation, but smaller cities that really depend on air connectivity to make it. Yeah, it's definitely not rural at all. There are a ton of smaller towns and cities in the US littered across the map with airports that are really dependent on these 50-seat CRJs and ERJs. So it's we'll have to stay tuned and see what happens when there literally are no more 50-seat RJs out there. That'll be a whole other episode of the podcast. 2023, it's coming. Yeah, it's coming. Let's go through some of the results, the the traffic results. It's the beginning of November, so we've, we've got kind of October results. The summer season has ended. The winter season, as far as schedules for airlines, have generally begun. The recovery stopped. It stopped recovering. You know, that's in, not good. But it's no, also it's, probably good. Well, I mean, there's you know, we're in these kind of don't the, you of, dare of, say two months. Times. No, don't no, say no, it. No, no. I was going to say we're kind of in in this period where we're of two minds. You know, personally, I want you know the aviation industry to recover and be stronger than ever. Of course, however, maybe not quite yet because it is a contributing factor to you know a pandemic. So you know, of course, want everybody to be safe, but would still like to see an aviation industry on the other side. So commercial traffic, such as it is, 42.4% below last year in October, a slight betterment than the 43% that was September and the 45.2% that was August. So after July, things just kind of stopped climbing. Yeah. And they're only going to go down from here as multiple European countries go back into some variation of lockdown. Airlines are already- canceling flights and mass and whatever recovery there may have been is going to evaporate rather quickly. Yeah. So what has happened over the last three months has been the upward trajectory of the recovery has kind of stopped, but it hasn't quite followed the seasonality of normal years. So that's why it's gotten a little bit better, a teeny tiny bit better. Total flights have been more seasonal. So following along with the total level of flights, the seasonality is starting to creep in where you see that decrease after the the main summer holidays as the winter season sets in. So it'll be interesting to see if total flights and commercial flights both kind of align on that seasonality aspect or if the lockdowns impact the flights dramatically making the recovery dramatically worse or if it just kind of stalls out. So that's kind of what I'm looking at. As far as passenger volume is concerned, 
European LCCs. So we're looking at Ryanair, EasyJet, and Wiz. You know, after summer, back down to down seventy percent. So not great at all. The few bright spots have been domestic markets in Asia, China specifically, back near 100%, Russia over 100%. So they've actually seen growth this year. <laughs> How the hell does that on work? The domestic market. I That one I can't explain, to be perfectly honest. And then some other Asian countries, their domestic markets have seen some fairly robust recoveries, Vietnam being one of them. So that's, you know, there are some bright spots, but overall, it is not currently a rosy picture unless one wears some very special, very, very tinted glasses. So in good news that I don't think anyone saw coming, Jet Airways is the best airline in the world. Particularly interesting since Jet Airways hasn't flown a flight in a number of years at this point. But this comes to us from Bloomberg. And the headline is, world's best performing airline stock is bankrupt Indian carrier, which would be Jet Airways. And remember, this is all relative. So if you're up merely 1%, you're probably the best airline in the world. But in this case, uh, stock in Jet Airways has surged almost 150% this year versus a 42% decrease in the 27-member Bloomberg World Airlines Index, which comprises of the world's biggest airlines. So I guess there are rumblings or rumors that someone is looking to resurrect Jet Airways, and that has sent the stock surging 150%. And again, this is all relative, so 150% up from virtually nothing is still virtually nothing, but up is better than down, which is you know what the majority of airlines are doing in 2020. So we talked about this a couple episodes ago where the winning bidder for Jet Airways is looking to get them back in the air in, in six months or so. Who knows if that's a realistic timeline? I'm not sure it is, nor am I sure why you would want to rush to get an airline back into the air. I Man, but, I, I don't know, but they're not alone. Under Jet Airways is China Express, which looks to be in the, the 40% up this year. Regional Express, which is the once little Australian airline who I think is acquiring 737s from Virgin Australia, looking to to shake up that market, and then Croatia Airlines? Huh? You take what you can get. I, I think the big news here is that Jet Airways stock is still trading. Yeah, that is probably the most surprising aspect of this. But good luck to Jet Airways or whoever owns it and eventually its astounding number of debt obligations. <laughs> good luck indeed. Staying with India, you can still buy Air India if you want. I don't. Okay, moving on. Thank you. <laughs> Let's take a quick break and- We have another interview. Wow. We have another interview, yeah. We'll take another quick break and we'll get back with Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren, who's going to fire up the pistons and let us in on what he's been up to. So stay with us. We will be right back. Welcome back. We are now joined by our recurring friend of the show, Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren, who usually has something you know that makes Jason and I very jealous that he has done, and then we invite him to come talk about it, and we tell him how jealous we are. This particular time is no different. 
Jeremy, welcome back to the show and tell us what you've done this time. Well, thanks for having me. It's uh, always a pleasure to talk with both of you. I look forward to getting more than 17 words in this time. I think well, we've hey, already broken well, Welcome back. Re- prepare your words. I'm disappointed I wasn't there with you this time. So I, I, at least I get to be jealous of something else you've done because we haven't had one of our trademarked stupid adventures recently for a whole host of reasons. I know. And that's really disappointing. But I look forward to that starting again sometime before 2030. Yeah. Good yeah. timing. Put a pin in that one. Great time. I'm free. I don't know about you, but I am. I am free in perpetuity. Awesome. It's going to be great. Anyway, to answer your question, Ian, yeah, I had an opportunity to take a ride with the last uh, known airworthy Douglas DC-7, flying with Ericsson Aerotanker on its uh, retirement flight at the end of fire season. So this particular aircraft started life as a passenger aircraft, and then at some point along the way was converted to a firefighting aircraft and and now has been retired. Do you know the history of this particular frame? I I know there's two kinds of old aircraft. There's one where everything has been absolutely meticulously documented, and you can tell me exactly where all the spare parts came from. And then there's the mysterious aircraft that they just found in the jungle somewhere and put back into the air. Which one of these is it? Yeah, that's a little uh, tough to say, but most likely the former. Like a lot of aircraft, um, older ones, specifically piston ones, they start to turn into a little bit of a Frankencraft. So like the, the, the engines on this particular DC-7 are a, they were originally Pratt & Whitney's. They're, they're kind of a mix of a couple different aircraft at this point that have somewhat interchangeable parts. But Anyway, like a lot of DC-7s, all of them started as, almost all of them, I think, if not all of them, started as passenger aircraft built between 53 and 58. And unfortunately, for the DC-7 anyway, it went from the, the bell of the ball to a asterisk on, in aviation history within a, a span of about seven years. And they were mostly gone from U.S. Airlines uh, in the mid-60s, and then most of them, including this one here, which started its life in Eastern in uh, 1958, February 1958, and then got kicked out of Eastern in 1966 and went over to a touring company. I think uh, Jason had that figured out, California. Yeah, I see. In 1966, it went to California Air Motive, and then again in 1966 to Skyway Travelers. 1968, it went to Thompson Flying Services. Uh, So it had kind of been bouncing around after just a short eight-year stint at Eastern. Yeah, that was pretty common. Uh, A lot of DC-7s, again, when they were built, uh, they were built specifically uh, as a lot as a handful of early Douglas planes were in cooperation with a major airline. And uh, again, kind of in line with traditions and trends, uh, it was with American. You might recall uh, the DC-3 was built in, in D- and 2 were built in similar fashion in cooperation with American. And American specifically wanted a plane that could go coast to coast in eight hours so that they didn't have to pay their pilots to uh, remain overnight. Previously, if you're thinking of, you know, the United with their 247, Boeing 247, which would have been common from like 33 to 36 thereabouts, that was a, a multi-day affair to get across the country, or at least uh, for the, the pilots, they'd, you know, make it through part of the day and their cruise speed was terribly low compared to now. 
So they'd have to stop, leave pilots in Chicago, and then they'd fly on the next day to Colorado and stay there and then so on and so forth. But anyway, with the DC-7, they were looking to get a plane that could make eight hours coast to coast. And they got that out of it and then extended its range. And so the B model, which uh, the Ericsson aerotanker that uh, we flew with is a, is a B model, was able to, kind of like the A330 of its day, uh, it was able to do coast to coast, short haul and intercontinental and, and do them both relatively affordably considering that it went to the C model, which was the mega ultra continental, uh, intercontinental in Pan Am and I want to say it was Pan Am, ran that from San Francisco to Paris nonstop and some like grueling 20 plus hour uh, adventure as a scheduled flight, which is bananas. But its main claim to fame was speed. And once the jets started coming online in 1958, the days were numbered for the Dash 7. And by the mid 60s, DC 8s and 707s and Caravels. DC-9s were flowing left, right, and center, and there really wasn't a space for the 7. The 6 was also way more popular and had way more reliability than the 7. Part of the the Dash 7's uh, appeal was its speed, but that also put a lot of stress on the engines, so the engines tended to kind of break down a lot. And so they tended to go from there to touring companies, like Jason had mentioned, and so a lot of them ended up doing... uh, weird stints with Thompson Flying Service and California Air Motive putzing around the U.S. and, and especially in Europe. And, and even then, they started going away quickly in the 70s, with the exception of a handful that found their way into the fire service, like, uh, like this one. So let's explore that a little bit. Why was the DC-7 chosen to become converted into a water bomber? Because obviously not every type of aircraft can successfully be converted and operated as a a water bomber. Why the DC-7? Well, there are two main points. One, which will come as no surprise to people who love Douglas, they're just sturdy airplanes. They're rugged. They're overbuilt. They're really just, they're fantastic. They can take a beating, take a licking and keep on kicking. To, to borrow a uh, Bojack phrase. But the, the other reason is they're just super cheap. No one wanted them. The, the, the residual value was basically nothing. You could, you could get one for a song because no one wanted them anymore. And so those two points combined together made for a, a pretty attractive offer. Uh, it also definitely helped that in terms of safety systems, you know, civilian passenger aircraft have way more systems redundancy, way more passenger safety and so it was considered a significantly safer aircraft to fly, even when it started converting in the 70s, which this one, I think, uh, they're not exactly sure the date, but they're pretty sure that it uh, was converted to a uh, an air tanker in the, the mid-70s. It was a lot safer to fly than uh, at that time you would have seen B-17s, uh, B-25s doing bomber runs, and, and they didn't have near the amount of redundancy, and accidents in the industry were pretty common. So how do you convert a DC-7 to an aerotanker? What do you do to it? Chainsaws. <laughs> okay. Wait, what did you say, Jason? Be- beyond chainsaws, what do you do to a DC-7 to make it so that it can fight wildfires? Well, probably not chainsaws, actually. Uh, that's way too blunt of an instrument. Though so I guess a, a real professional could probably, you know, like the ones that do those roadside, you know, little bears or something like that, they'd probably be fine. But I digress. The... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the pretty much everything gets gutted. So the main 
thing that you want to do is reduce its weight to increase its nimbleness. So all of the passenger stuff comes out. The pressurization, so the superchargers on the engines are all coming out. The air duct systems and the aircraft are all coming out. The seats, the walls, uh, sidewalls rather, the ducting. If it doesn't need to be there to keep the plane flying, it's not there anymore. So it, it's an aluminum shell with a big tank in it, basically. Yeah, twenty at full capacity is three thousand gallons, twenty seven thousand pounds of retardant, and obviously they do some heavy modifications to the frame of the aircraft so that they can accommodate that tank, and then you know they they string up the uh, connections to the cockpit to enable the drop controls, but for the most part every Everything else is gone. So this particular example did save a small chunk of the first class cabin, which was was a, a nice surprise. Most fire aircraft are completely gutted. You walk in and you can see the ribs of the frame with the initial, you know, grease pen markings on on every single rib and every single piece of aluminum in the plane, which is I think pretty neat. But this one still had its first class cabin, part of it. So why 63 years, give or take later, in 2020, is this particular, or was this particular DC-7 still operating fire missions? Realistically, it's inexpensive, which was uh, kind of surprising. And talking with, with folks from Ericsson, a lot of the reason that the piston aircraft go away is that they're expensive to, to operate. It's, you know, there are just the challenges at this point of keeping the kind of oil it needs on hand. So some of it is acquisition difficulty of, of finding a bunch of stuff. But the big reason it's it's about half the cost of jets. They they wouldn't disclose facts and figures other than to say it was about half the cost of a jet per day. And that's pretty appealing, particularly on the state level. It turns out it is a complicated mess of how states and local governments and federal governments pay out for drops. And it's actually politics almost more than it is anything else that's killing the DC-7 in this case. That's uh, fitting for a, a discussion for this week. So before we let you go, what is it like flying a stripped down DC-7? It was interesting in a lot of ways because on, on the one hand, it's the, the second flight that I've taken since COVID. And I'm lucky and privileged enough to not, this wasn't my first time in a piston airplane. And piston flying is a very, I've been struggling to find a word for it. In fact, I think Jason and I talked about it a few days after the flight that it's, I'm sure that the Germans have some insane 50 character word that incorporates the smell of the burning oil that you get. That's, that's very present, normal in older planes, but present. The, the vibration from the engine. The flames coming out of the stack, it's its a very physical, sensory, it, it touches all the senses and, in a way that jet flying kind of doesn't. And so it was pretty incredible to, to feel in touch with something that I haven't done in a long time. And that felt pretty darn good and pretty darn lucky and pretty darn privileged to have that opportunity. But it, it's great. I mean, we overflew Crater Lake. I don't know. I didn't get a chance to look at what the... AGL was, but I mean, you could see the cars and the little people down there, so it wasn't very, it wasn't very high. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Now we haven't talked about this, but I'm going to put you on the spot. What are some other now very strange, old, outdated 
aircraft that are operating as fire bombers? You know, there's not a ton. There's been a, a pretty big shift. The Ultimately, the same phenomenon that felled the DC-7 in the mid-60s jets is the same phenomenon that's felling them now. And that's true pretty much across the board. Uh, the Pretty much the, the, the story of fire bombing aircraft of air tankers is everyone's previously dirty laundry. It's surplus B-17s and B-25s back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Surplus C-130s, which I don't think many people realize that was a plane that made its first flight in the 50s. It is a very old, it, it's been you know redone, kind of like the B-52. There's just iterations that go on forever, but it has C-130 is a fundamentally old product. So you see C-130s being redone, and that's carrying over into now. But the the DC-7 is probably retired to, to kind of envelope a little bit with Ian's thing earlier. It's not a guarantee. Uh, the fire service has the option to restore it, and Erickson says they could keep it going. But the fire service, the federal and state level, they want jets. And so it is likely that the transition to jets is is going to fail the DC-7 in 2020, much like it did with the airlines in 1966. But I, I don't think there are any piston aircraft left. Well, maybe the S-2 Tracker, but I, uh, which operates down in California, mostly. There's, there's the, the Grumman. There's probably a handful of those left, but that's probably the only one. Previously, the, the P-2 Neptune, but that's been gone for a few years. So it, you're probably just looking at either the, the DC-7 makes a comeback next season or or it doesn't. And then I think it'd just be the, the Grumman S2 Tracker would be the only one left. Well, I hope to one day fly with you on one of these. I hope to, to never see one of them anywhere near where I live. But it, it's cool to know that there is and potentially still could be a DC-7 63 years old still trying to put out fires out west. I think one of the things that was particularly neat about this is both the pilots, the word that they, they were great, but one of them in particular had the fire season out West has been absolutely brutal this year. You know, I've lived in Washington state for 12 years. We had our first really big fires on the Cascade side, Southern Oregon got devastated. And this particular aircraft has been based in Medford, Oregon, that's a decent sized city uh, near the California border. and they had two major fires reach the city and its suburbs and were one of them was all of Phoenix talent was all over the national news because they lost something like almost 3000 structures. And one of the two pilots happened to live in those suburbs and had the unfortunate distinction of dropping, uh, making some of his last drops in the DC seven over his neighborhood, which is <laughs> just insane. And that was pretty, pretty, humbling to get uh, to be able to talk to him and get hear some of his experiences in a way that I think most pilots they go out and they're dropping over there you know it's, it's some other problem but when it's on your doorstep and you're flying over your house and watching your family spray water onto their house he just assumed his house is gone it survived uh, which is great but most of his neighborhood is gone and that's kind of wild that I think brings it home for them in a way that uh, you don't usually get. Yeah, and you certainly don't want. No. In, in, in that respect. You know, a fascinating airplane and, and probably not coming back, but 
but we'll we'll hold out hope. And next time you end up on on some random retirement flight of a, a 60 semi-year-old plane. We hope you'll come back and, and tell us about it again. You can read more about Jeremy's flight aboard the Ericsson Aerotanker DC-7 and see some of his great photographs from the flight at Business Insider. And we will put a link to that article in the show notes. Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, guys. Bye, friend. See ya. Welcome back. And I am now covered in grease. I have lost my hearing, but I had a lot of fun. And you got to punch Jeremy's punch card one more time. I did. I did. We now owe him a hat. Where should we go? Should we go to space? I love space. All right. What airplanes go to space, though? I don't know. I'm grasping at transition straws. Here we go. Space jet. I, I'm so confused. As you should be. Okay. The Mitsubishi MRJ, once known MRJ, now Space Jet for some reason, is not looking good. It's <laughs> Mitsubishi Heavy Industries has never had particularly good luck or good progress, I'd say, with the now what we would call Space Jet. And due to the, the guise of the COVID-19 downturn in aviation has suspended all development of the MRJ Space Jet program which is really hard to see it rebounding coming back from. I think they have a skeleton crew to do some technical work or some other, basically some mundane work with the MRJ. But by and large, the program is completely suspended and I just don't see it coming back. What about you? I don't quite understand the technical distinction between what they've done with the program, which is to kind of put it in some sort of suspended animation and just make sure that it's kept warm versus just saying, okay, we're done with this. And I mean, I, I get you don't want to throw all your hard work away, but at some point, you know, when you come back to it, are you still going to want that particular aircraft? Yeah, that's been the thing is that the MRJ is the wrong aircraft for the wrong time. It never made sense. I think we even talked about this way back when in the early days of this podcast, when I actually went to Nagoya, Japan and met with the Mitsubishi Heavy, Ind Heavy Industries MRJ program. Right. They were still, this is probably 2017, acting as if the scope clause issues that pr would prevent the MRJ from even entering service in the US would just kind of resolve themselves. And that could not be further from the truth. And I don't believe they ever got the weight of the aircraft down to the appropriate levels that it could enter service under the scope clause rules. So this was an ill-fated program. I think a lot was learned at Mitsubishi. And I, I honestly don't see them coming back to the table with another commercial aircraft. Makes me wonder what happens to the aircraft that were already built and I think painted in ANA and JAL livery. We could each take one home. Sure. We could donate it to Jet Airways. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be something? That would be something. So staying in Japan, we've got Japan Airlines retiring which aircraft? And because they're moving some things around. 
Yes, they are moving a fair bit of things around. So the 787s, at least some of them, will be transferred to the newly expanded Zip Air subsidiary, which is JAL's new low-cost carrier that only started operations a couple weeks ago, yeah, right? yeah. I think. Not, not all we that we talked ago. about it, I think, on the last podcast because yeah, so they had two passengers. It has two passengers, but now they will have significantly additional 787-8s. But at the same time, JAL is taking a cue from a lot of other airlines around the world and retiring a chunk of its fleet, and that all 11 of its 777-200ERs will be phased out of the international fleet by the end of fiscal year 2020, which is, I believe, actually the end of the first quarter of 2021. Fiscal years are, are weird. But they're also they're going to continue operating the 13 777 ers they have, but they'll eventually be replaced by the A350-1000s. I think I read that there are some other 777-200-non-ERs, which will be shifted to international routes if they're not already. But JAW is making a lot of fleet moves, but that is not too unexpected, is it? I mean, no. Everyone's trying to take advantage of you know, figuring out what comes next and how they can make their fleets work. And I think in a few years, everything's either going to fall into place for a lot of airlines or a lot of airlines are going to be going... Oh, that was bad. Yeah. So there's definitely been a lot of fleet simplification recently. I, I was looking through this actually just today at work from a few airlines, and there there was a number of airlines who very recently had some quite complex differentiation in their fleets who no longer do take Aeromexico, for example. They had E145, 767s, 777-200s. And they're all gone. They're basically a 787 and 737 airline at this point. I think there's a few E-170s operating for their regional operation, but there's a number of examples like that. Even within Delta, there's no more 737-700s. There's no more 777s ER or LR. There's no MD-90s. There's no MD-88s. A lot of airlines have really taken advantage weirdly of COVID to simplify their fleet for the better. Yeah. I mean, look at, you know, American Airlines, I think is the prime example of an airline with 264,000 different aircraft types. And now they're down to what, roughly four families. Yeah. And American went in hard in retiring its aircraft. I mean, the 757, the 767, the MD-80, the E-190, A330-200, A330-300, they're all gone from the American fleet in a matter of months. Yeah. And I would not be surprised to see some further reductions depending on, on how things shake out. So yeah, airlines are, are figuring out a way to make things more streamlined, to make things work for them. And hopefully this ends up working for them long term, but we'll see. Let's close the show with a couple, you know, notes about deliveries and some first flight stuff. It was announced last week that Kalita will be the launch customer for the 777-300-ERSF. So that's the ERSF stand for? Extended Range Special Freighter. Oh. So that's the the converted 777-300-ER. That's going to look great. That GCAS is the customer for. So the launch airline we now know will be Kalita. Do we know we where that aircraft is coming from? So what airline it operated yeah, with before? Yeah. No. We will find that out. Or, or, or if we do, I don't know off the top of my head. But 
we'll track that down. The A330-800 was finally delivered for the first hey, time. Hey, double delivery. Double delivery to, to Kuwait to 12, 14. The first two of 14 on order, which I believe are the only 14 on order. Yeah, this was a program we all thought point. Was, was dead. And Kuwait's going to make it work. But they're doing that. And an interesting nugget of aviation, Air Transat took its A321LR from Montreal to Athens nonstop. So that sounds like fun. On the way back, they stopped in Paris. Oh, yeah. Getting from uh, North America to Athens is nothing particularly special. Getting back nonstop with an narrow body, now that'd be special. And it couldn't do it. Yeah, not yet. So maybe the the XLR might be able to do that one. That's the trick. Making that hop nonstop is the real yeah. trick. Yeah, exactly. And we will close the show with Jason's favorite aircraft is of it? all time. I don't know. I doubt it. I, I don't. I've only been on it once, but the Avro RJ in this case, <laughs> the, the, eight, the eighty five, yes, has exited CityJet's fleet, or I think is the exit is imminent, or well, probably by the time you hear this, I have only flown it once. I think that was in episode like three. We talked with Jeremy once again. I think that was his first punch in the punch card. Yes, I believe you're right. Quest to get the hat. But I have only flown on it once. It was the CityJet variant as well, which was awful because that aircraft was configured in a 3-3 layout inside where many others were 2-3. So it was, I would gamble to say, the most uncomfortable flight in my life had I had stayed in the seat I was assigned as I was in a windowless window seat, which is never good, but I was able to move to the back of the aircraft with a view of that wing, it just doesn't make sense. Four engines, high wing, regional jet aircraft is just bizarre. But if you haven't yet flown one, too bad. You're going to have a real tough time finding another one unless you are on board a firefighting aircraft. I think there are a number of them and from the city jet fleet that are being converted to fire operations, actually. Well, then we'll send Jeremy on that and we'll come full circle and we'll call it an episode. Perfect. This has been... Episode 97 of AvTalk. We are closing in on episode 100. A few people have sent in some ideas. We are kicking those around. I'm still trying to come up with exactly what we're going to do a month from now, but we're still working on that. So if you do have any ideas, podcast at fr24.com, drop us a note, and we'll find out exactly what we're going to end up doing. I hope to make it at least a little special. Thank you, everyone, so very much for listening. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.